Hi, it's Jeff Krasno, and welcome to the Commune Podcast. Skipping the preamble today and jumping right in. Okay, so we are hearing medical officials and news people talk a lot about precautionary measures to quash the spread of COVID and social cohesion around mask wearing, social distancing, avoiding super spreader events, etc., is absolutely essential. But there is a dearth of discussion around our underlying well-being, or lack thereof. And this is a lengthy exhortation on that subject. I encourage anyone who is interested to read the original article at onecommune.com slash commusings, as it has dozens of links to source data. So without further ado, laced with some madcap personal anecdotes as usual, here are my thoughts on the other epidemic. We're late for soccer. It's always the elusive shin guards hunkered away in some shadowy corner. I suppose I too might sequester at the prospect of the flailing cleats and errant kicks of 10-year-old girls. Lolly sanctifies punctuality, an odd proclivity for someone her age. Any remote intimation of tardiness plugs the chatterbox that normally lives inside her head into a speaker, and an endless stream of anxious inner dialogue is amplified out into the world. I wonder where she gets this loquacity. I am channeling all my parental empathy to pull back from DEFCON 5. Lolly is fiddling with the ASO app, checking the game schedule for the 10th time when she discovers that I am the responsible parent for bringing this week's snack. Fucking snack. Obviously, I've not procured the cursed snack. This post-game pastime is often more sacred than the game itself. Somehow, when a parent provides a superlative snack, there's a mystical halo effect that gilds the child with a profound sense of belonging and confidence. The beleaguered designated parent, saddled with bulging satchels of mystery grub, are eyed with the scrutiny of a military aide carrying the nuclear football. Hushed whispers weave their web. What's the snack going to be today? Any consternation about potential lateness is now usurped by the absence of snack. Lolly's countenance matches the color of her crimson jersey. She's apoplectic. The moment has arrived for me to activate my rarely invoked Zen Master superpowers. I drop Lolly at the pitch and assess the situation. Can I acquire a satisfactory snack and return in time for my part of the sporting ritual, the nervous pacing of the sidelines punctuated by the occasional bark of encouragement? Lolly's games are at Johnny Cochran Middle School, just off Crenshaw Boulevard in Mid-City, Los Angeles. The nondescript appellation Mid-City is appropriate in exactly the way you might imagine an endless straggle of asphalt in every direction, pocked by bi-level mini-malls and fast food fare from Arby's to El Pollo Loco. Google Maps tells me there are no less than a dozen 7-Elevens within a throw of a stone. In the hopes of finding something with a semblance of nutritional value, I am looking in vain for a grocery store. So I just start driving. Finally, nestled between a 99-cent store and a laundromat, I spot a pileup of grocery carts in front of a concrete fortress, the contents of which is only drearily revealed by a lime-green neon sign spelling Arkit. 
the M having met an untimely death. I park, hustle in, and survey the savanna for options. There's an aisle completely dedicated to soda and sport drink of every fluorescent hue. Another reserved for savory chips of all geometries, and yet another preserved almost exclusively for variations of Oreos. There's also ketchups and sauces, spreads and breads. If you were to pick up any single one of these items and read the label, they would all share one common ingredient, refined sugar. In fact, added sugar is in over 80% of the foods on the grocery store shelf, and in food deserts like this one, that percentage is even higher. Now, this episode is not a dissertation on sugar, the food industry, or obesity. I couldn't possibly address the depth of this scourge on society within the parameters of one podcast monologue. If you want thorough researched information about the public health and socio-political implications of processed food and refined sugar, then read or listen to Dr. Robert Lustig or Dr. Mark Hyman. Still, here are some broad points. The consumption of sugar and sugary sweeteners, mostly in the form of high fructose corn syrup, HFCS, has skyrocketed over the past hundred years. In 1915, the average annual sugar consumption per person was 17 and a half pounds. As of 2011, that number rose to 150 pounds of sugar per person annually. The average American now consumes 30 teaspoons or 120 grams of sugar per day. That is approximately double the U.S. government recommendation. A significant portion of this supplemental sugar is delivered in the beverage form. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a 12-ounce can of Mountain Dew contains 46.5 grams of sugar. More startling, though, is the prevalence of sugar in beverages that are marketed as part of a healthy lifestyle, like sport hydration drinks, or consider a 20-ounce bottle of Sobe Energized Green Tea, an innocuous, even purportedly enlightened, thirst quencher, which packs a whopping 61 grams. A table sugar, or sucrose, is a disaccharide comprised of glucose and fructose, which in digestion are separated and metabolized very differently. Glucose provides calories for cells. The liver turns excess fructose into fat. Fructose is known to induce leptin resistance and greatly increase the risk of developing obesity as leptin plays an important role in regulating hunger, suppressing leptin release can produce an insatiable appetite and lead to overconsumption. So why is high fructose corn syrup so omnipresent? Well, it's cheap, about half the price of cane sugar, largely because the big food industry and corn refiners have successfully lobbied for subsidies that are guaranteed through the farm bill. The production of high fructose corn syrup and other sweeteners under their true cost of production is a citizen-funded, government-enabled grant to companies like Coca-Cola, who pack their drinks with sodium to make you thirstier and mask it with cheap, high-fructose corn syrup. This allows Big Beverage to market its product in increasingly larger portion size. And we've all witnessed, and perhaps experienced, the 44-ounce Big Gulp, the daily consumption of which will yield 57 pounds of fat by year's end. What is the byproduct of ubiquitous high fructose corn syrup and processed food in general? Well, from 2000 through 2018, the prevalence of obesity in the United States increased from 30.5% to 
to 42.4%. So what is obese? Obesity in adults is defined as a body mass index, BMI, of greater than or equal to 30. BMI is calculated as weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared rounded to one decimal point. Okay, so, so to save you some math, a BMI of 30 for someone six feet tall is 222 pounds. A BMI of 40, severely obese, is 295 pounds. And the prevalence of severe obesity has increased in the last 20 years from 4.7% to 9.2%. For comparison, obesity rates in China hovers around 6%. Little doubt remains that there is a correlation between sugar consumption and obesity rates. Sugar is also known to suppress the immune system. Just by consuming 100 grams of sugar can suppress white blood cell function by 40% for at least five hours. Why interrupt your day with this disquisition on the evils of sugar at this very moment? Because while COVID-19 is a nasty, highly transmissible and potentially fatal virus, lurking behind the pandemic is a more pervasive and insidious epidemic. We consume too much sugar. We are increasingly obese and living with chronic disease and inflammation. And in our immune compromised state, we increase our susceptibility to viruses. Escalating obesity prevalence is directly tied to skyrocketing rates of chronic disease, most notably diabetes. There are 35 million American adults, 10.5% of the population with diabetes, and nearly 100 million additional people that are pre-diabetic. The estimated domestic total economic cost of diagnosed diabetes in 2017 was $327 billion. There is a distinct socioeconomic component to these data that often correspond with racial inequities. Black men are 7% more likely to be obese than white men, and black women are the most disproportionately impacted group, with obesity rates at 57%, 17 points higher than white women. Comorbidities, the simultaneous presence of two chronic diseases or conditions in a patient, such as obesity and diabetes, have contributed to a COVID-19 age-adjusted fatality rate among black Americans that is 3.7 times white Americans. Now, I cast no aspersions on people carrying extra weight. My childhood chubbiness and its accompanying self-esteem issues have been thoroughly documented in my prior screeds, and in full candor, I am currently in a knife fight with a pair of muffin tops that are cresting over my belt loops as I approach 50. To be clear, being healthy should not be confused with a commodification of wellness, which projects unattainable images of perfection in an attempt to create a feeling of deficiency and then markets products and services to address that perceived lack. Being well is not about appearance. It's about health and thus should not be judged. The media floods us with daily stratagem to address the riddle of snowball and COVID diagnoses. Indeed, there was a point when America could have followed the lead of other nations and quashed the spread through well-documented policies that include a combination of personal responsibility and governmental leadership. These tactics include mask wearing, social distancing, and personal hygiene in combination with mass testing, contact tracing, and the curbing of super-spreading events. By most estimates, just 10 to 20% of coronavirus infections account for 80% of the transmissions. 
of incompetent leadership may have ironically informed a new strategy for international terrorism. Leave the United States alone. They'll do themselves in. While there is a glut of newscasters, scientists, and CDC officials hammering home important, if conventional, policies, there is a deafening silence from the media and the mainstream medical community around personal health, the pre-COVID ground conditions in America that have led to such widespread transmission and fatalities, 5.2 million cases and 166,000 deaths at recording. There are data emerging suggesting a correlation between excess weight and COVID-19 severity. A recent Open Safely study reports the risk of dying from COVID-19 increased by 27% among obese individuals and was doubled in patients with a body mass index greater than 40. In a prospective cohort study of patients with COVID-19 from New York City, the prevalence of diabetes and obesity was higher in individuals admitted to hospitals than those not admitted to hospitals, 34.7 versus 9.7 for diabetes and 39.5 versus 30.8 for obesity, respectively. Instead of celebrating the elixir of binges from chubby hubby to Netflix that has conspired to coin the term the COVID-15, referring to weight gain from inactivity during quarantine, we could be seizing this moment to have an initiative for public health to promote exercise, mindfulness practices, and proper nutrition as a means to build healthy immunity, to take on big food and hold them accountable by, at the very least, internalizing their true costs to educate widely on nutrition, promote cooking and community gardens, to provide incentives for grocery to enter underserved neighborhoods and stock fruits and vegetables, to make SNAP benefits redeemable online such that these services can deliver to underserved communities, to consider taxes on egregious products similar to the cigarette tax, to enlarge the food and vegetable prescription program for children, and to pass a new farm bill. Now, there's very little public discourse focused on what we need to do to improve the underlying well-being of society. And while robust immune systems are not going to protect us from more lethal viruses like Ebola, there's plenty of good reason to address the underlying root causes of our societal dis-ease. We can leverage this moment to invest in our communal health or continue lining the pockets of Big Pharma to incessantly treat the maleffects. Further, well-being must cease to be a class privilege. Running, walking, practicing yoga, core exercise, and meditating require time, but virtually no financial resources. If you could benefit from a free yoga or meditation course to jumpstart your wellness routine, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. The access both logistically and financially to high-quality food, however, must be addressed. Enough confabulating. I'm late for kickoff. I return to the game sheepishly with my bags of treats. Fifteen individually packaged bags of chips, a case of juice boxes, a pack of Chips Ahoy, and a watermelon that I managed to carve up with an old library card. The Red Devils are crushed eight to one, mostly due to the opposition's pair of dazzling Brazilian twins. The morning quickly dissipates, though, as snack is unveiled. Lolly, who knows my sugar rant too well, is relieved by my selections. She gives me a nod, as if to acknowledge and assuage the wave of hypocritical guilt she knows I am surfing. 
The team drowns their sorrows in corn syrup. Finally, out of pure sympathy, a compassionate mom reaches for a jagged slice of watermelon. We look at each other, then together at the kids, and simultaneously shrug in resignation. <laughs>